All right, you may be seated this morning. Good morning, my friends. Uh, my name is Hunter Hambrick, one of the pastors here at Providence, and we'll go ahead and dismiss any remaining Kid City folks. Our children were in their classrooms earlier this morning, so if you have a kindergarten through fifth grader, uh, you are welcome to check them into their classes right now. Our Spanish-speaking congregation and new reality, our middle school ministry, uh, will stay in here for this morning service. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and I also have the privilege of introducing this morning's guest speaker. In the fall of 2013, I took my very first class on Christian theology. I was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed freshman at Wheaton College, which is a Christian liberal arts school located outside of Chicago in Illinois. And uh, most mornings I'd wake up expectant, eager, hopeful to take on the day. Uh, that was most mornings, except for the mornings when I had a class with Dr. Baycote. And uh, that is to no fault of his own. It is simply because the class I had with him was at 8 a.m. on Monday in January in Chicago. <laughs> so as an 18-year-old freshman, I wasn't exactly motivated to get going to class. Uh, needless to say, I don't exactly remember much from that course, something about Bible and Jesus and grace, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward two years later, though, in the fall of 2015, and I was a part of this program called Wheaton in Chicago. Uh, the Urban Studies Department had this opportunity for you to uh, leave the suburbs of Chicago and live in the urban core of, of Chicago and live on the near north side. Uh, you could take classes and be a part of an internship program and just uh, work and play and enjoy the city, and it was absolutely amazing. And that semester, in the fall of 2015, I took a second class with Dr. Baycote. This time, taught not at 8 a.m. on Mondays, but 6 p.m. on Tuesday nights. And it changed my life. Uh, the title of the course was Theologies of Transformation, where we learned about how God was at work, not just in individuals, but in systems. And in the course of learning about how God was present in society, my heart was transformed as well. In a cramped Chicago-style row home sandwich with 18 other students, I learned about a man, a Latin American theologian named Gustavo Guterres. This radical priest from Peru taught something called God's preferential option for the poor, which is not a way to go to the poor to change or do something for the other, but rather is a way to go to the poor and be changed yourself because God is already at work among them. It turned out Guterres, 70 years prior, was asking the same question that I, as a white male suburban individual, was asking in college in 2015. How can a Christian live in a world wracked by injustice? And in that class, I learned, in the words of Dr. Baycote, what we understand, confess, and proclaim about God is directly connected to the way we conduct our lives. Political commitments flow out of commitments to God's word. Dr. Baycote's class and the influence of many, many other professors is one of the many reasons why Kara and I call Providence home today. In addition to being professor of theology at Wheaton, Dr. Baycote also directs the college's Center for Applied Christian Ethics and has served as an editor for Christianity Today and hosts a podcast called The Linked. He has published several books, including The Political Disciple, which you'll hear him share from today, and you can grab a copy outside the lobby. And uh, later tonight at 5.30, he's going to be joined along with uh, Jason Dans and a, uh, with a group of panelists, speakers of faith leaders here in the Denver area. And uh, you are not going to want to miss that, as it's going to be a very, very exciting conversation, dinner, childcare, all the things you heard about earlier. So please put your hands together and join me in welcoming Dr. Vince Baycote. Good morning. Hey, Dave. Hunter told me you were here, so then I was like, oh, wow, Dave's here. Now I'm even more nervous, right? Now, that's Dave Bouchard of Denver Seminary here, everybody. Sorry. I... Uh, thank you for that intro, Hunter. You, know, you never know when you're teaching lots of classes. I'm in my 24th year at Wheaton College. You never know what people hook on to and what you know, what clicks for people. So it's really encouraging uh, to hear that because a lot of times we don't, we don't know until later what's really landed with people and what's been helpful for them. So uh, it's been great. And it's, it's been great to uh, just keep connected with Hunter since the, the Wheaton days and to see what the Lord is doing. 
Uh, and it's great to be here and to be a part of the Redemptive Edge Summit and to see the wonderful things that, that are happening here. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by your spirit. Lord, you know what everyone has brought with them today. You know the things within us that make us anticipate welcoming you. You know the things within us that might make us put up walls. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would make us people who are completely open to you and receptive to you this morning. Make us not just great hearers and receivers of your word, but people who are indeed transformed by it and people who are putting it into practice. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, So you see this phrase, uh, the political discipleship experiment. You might be wondering, what is that? It's just one of the ways of talking about the question of the relationship between being a disciple of Jesus and this thing called politics. Not everybody thinks that there's a relationship between those things. And sometimes when they do think about the relationship between those things, how should we put it? Um, Complications arise. (laughs) And when those complications arise, sometimes people are not so certain about what to make of this relationship between being a disciple of Jesus and being engaged in this thing called politics. And so that is what I'd like to speak about this morning. The text is from Psalm 8. And really, the reason that I chose that text is in part because of one of the questions that can arise about this. In fact, I'm going to be saying that there are four questions that we have to be thinking about when we're thinking about this political discipleship experiment. And that first question is what I call the opportunity question or the weather, as in not weather like, you know, the changing weather, like in Chicago and in here, but weather as in W-H-E-T-H-E-R, weather question, whether we should be involved in the first place in politics. And I think that's an important question to answer because here's one of the things that I've learned over the years. There are a lot of people who say, no, I think as a Christian, we ought to be involved in politics. And they're fine going about it, voting, doing whatever. But what I've discovered is it's not always clear really why they think they should be doing it. In other words, they might have this sense on the inside that it's a thing you should do, but can you talk about how what God's revealed to us opens up the path for you to be doing this? It's not always clear, I've discovered, for people, and I want us to make sure that we are together clear about that. So the reason I picked Psalm 8 is about this opportunity question. That's question number one. And and here's why I'm going with Psalm 8. Usually, if I'm talking about this, I start with page one of the Bible. I start with Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 28. In fact, humor me while I read those. So this is the, the culmination of God's creative act. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man our image in our likeness and let them rule over the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, God creates them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, that means humans have responsibility for the entire creation. I call it a great commission, the original great commission, not in competition with the one in Matthew 28, okay, but it is a great commission. Taking care of the whole earth seems like a great commission to me. But here's the thing that I think can happen with the way that some people learn about the Christian faith. And here's what the problem is. They'll say, well, it's great that you are talking about this thing that's on page one in chapter one, but the Bible doesn't end on page one in chapter one. Have you read chapter three? Because what happens in chapter three? The fall happens in chapter three. And the way that some people learn about the effect of the fall is that it doesn't matter really what God said in chapter one and chapter two. It's nice that they had that opportunity, but they blew it. 
And now because they blew at what God gave them to do, God said, hey, you remember that? No mulligan for you. For golfers, mulligan, you get to do it over, right? No do-over for you. No, now you just kind of have a complicated relationship with the world until I send Jesus, and then Jesus will get you out of here. I mean, sometimes that's the way that people learn about the Christian faith. And so a person might think, oh, well, you're starting with Genesis 1. I'm not so convinced. So I thought, I'll start with Psalm 8, because what is going on in Psalm 8? Well, first of all, when is Psalm 8? A long way after Genesis 3, if I'm not mistaken. And what do we see here in Psalm 8? The part I want to focus on the most begins at verse 3, really verse 3 to 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man or human beings that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You may be a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor, and then here it is. You made him ruler over the works of your hands, which sounds a lot like chapter 1 to me, right? You may rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under its feet, all flocks and herds, beasts of the field, birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that's in the paths of the sea. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1.26, Genesis 1.28. Right, well, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I don't think that this text is here because it's saying, you know, isn't it a shame that God gave humans this opportunity in page one and we just blew it? And so I'm just putting this here just to lament that we blew it. That doesn't seem to be the disposition of what's going on in Psalm 8. It seems to be enthusiasm and excitement and gratitude about what God has done and what remains for Christians to do. I said it's a great commission, the first great commission. I a lot of times call it the undiscovered great commission or the forgotten great commission because it's as if God never said it with the way that a lot of Christians go about their lives. It's like, well, God did that, but, you know, then the fall happened, and then horror, horror, which it is, uh, and then, hey, here comes Jesus, right? And, and, and this strange thing happens, right? So God creates this world. He, cre he creates humans. He gives humans this great commission. The fall happens, and then when people talk about redemption, it's as if creation is here, and redemption is here, and they're like this. They're at odds with each other their intention with each other. And if that's the case, right, then what's, what's being saved about? It's not about whatever's going on with creation. It's about kind of tolerating a, a dissonant situation with creation while you wait for Jesus to come back and get us out of here. Now, there are, there are a lot of problems with that way of thinking about it, some of which I'll address, but I think we need to acknowledge how common it is for many Christians to live with a great tension between creation and redemption, right? I mean, some people might think redemptive age summit. Okay, that's, get, that's a getting us out of here summit. That's a getting saved summit. It's a having nothing to do with this terra firma stuff summit. But that's not what it is. It's very much about participating in what God said. And Psalm 8 helps us to see that God has not abandoned what he said on page one, that this great commission remains for all of us. So that if we're talking about whether there's an opportunity, yes, there is. There's this great opportunity for us to be stewards of God's world. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't see the word steward in there. You're right. You don't. But what do you see? You see that there's God, okay. You see that there's a creation, all right, got that. And then you have humans that God's given a responsibility. Now, God never said, hey, by the way, when I'm giving you this creation to do, it really means it's not mine anymore. This is not what God means. It's still his. It still belongs to him. God never said, I'm giving this up. In fact, he said, look, you're a part of this. So how am I giving this up? So if he's not giving it up, if it's his, and he gives somebody else something to do, 
And he's the one that gave you the something to do, which sounds like you probably need to answer to him for what you do with what belongs to him. I think you call that stewardship. So you don't need the word stewardship in here in order to understand that that's in fact what it is. Sometimes what happens with the way that people learn about the Bible is like, well, I didn't see the word. And okay, I didn't see the word in there. I'm not so sure that we ought to do it that way. Now, the problem is, of course, that if you look at what a lot of Christians do, um, it seems to be a selective critique when that's what they're saying. Because there are a lot of things that they do and they think are properly Christian things to do. It's like, well, I don't see that word in there either. <laughs> and, but they go ahead and do it, right? And my point is, is that what we see is something that we call stewardship clearly in this text in Psalm 8. We see it in Genesis 1. You cannot escape that, which means God's given us this great stewardship opportunity and responsibility. Yes, the fall happened. The fall introduces not futility into this, but complication into this. I think that's an important thing to point out because, again, sometimes people think, okay, there's the fall, and what does that mean? It's like, well, it means think about something, something just hurtling through space and tumbling and having no bearings, etc. and that's what's happened ever since Genesis 3, but that's not really what's going on. So, yes, it's really bad what happens in Genesis 3. Yes, there's a curse that happens in Genesis 3. But do you notice what God says in the curse to the man and the woman? Now, he says to the woman, it's about what's going to happen with reproduction. Does he say, hey, you remember all that stuff about like filling the earth and subduing it and having children and everything? Yeah, forget it. Well, it's not what he says. He just says, it's going to be rough. <laughs> right? He says it's going to be rough, but he doesn't say it's not happening. It is going to happen. And then when he talks to the man about his relationship to the ground, he doesn't say, hey, you remember all that stuff about like agriculture and everything? You know what? You need to just give it up because you get nothing. But that's not what he says. What he says is, yes, you will get fruit from your labor in the ground, but now the work that you do is now labor. It's harder work. And the fruitfulness of it will not just produce what you desire. Sometimes other things come along, weeds, thorns, thistles, things that kind of complicate the situation. So my point is, is that, the fall, the curse, is a curse of futility. Not, not, a futility. It's not a curse of futility. It is a curse of complication. And I wonder when people think about Genesis 3, if they're really thinking, well, it's futility. But it's not because everything goes on. But it goes on with complication. right? And things can happen that are fruitful which includes our political life. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't see the word politics in there either. You're right. But think about this. Think about this. Some people like to say, when do you get the emergence of what we call political realities? They think of it as something that wasn't needed until you get the fall. Why? Well, because after the fall, relationships do become complicated, right, between the man and the woman. And, of course, we see that their sons are not exactly the best buddies, right? So, you know, God says, hey, here comes the, I need you guys to make a sacrifice. Okay, let's make a sacrifice. God likes Abel's sacrifice because he brought the best. Cain apparently picked up a few items along the way and brought those, and God was not so happy with those. He goes, but you can get a mulligan, Cain. Cain wasn't interested in a mulligan. He was kind of upset, so he told his brother, let's go for a walk. And only one of them came back, right? And my, my point is, is that, you know, there's already been a problem with human relationships, and politics are what we need to manage our complicated world with these human relationships. We need to have things in place that people call political life that include things like law and forms of justice in order to keep some kind of order in the world. So you're right, we do need that. But we would need things about ordering our relationships if there wasn't a fall. Because if you had 
Adam and Eve. And if they have children, and if you have more people, at some point you're going to have realities that are external to their families, that people together are going to have to figure out together how to make sense of those things. Like, for example, one day they'll need something called a road. And then a road might be something that people have to decide, hey, who's going to build the road? Where are we going to get the stuff from for the road? Which way is the road going to go? Wait, do we need to do something so that the road goes in one direction rather than another, et cetera, et cetera? All the things that would go all the way maybe to having a highway one day or to having stoplights stop instead of stop signs, all that type of stuff, you would need anyway. You would need anyway because there's this ordering of what we can call our common life, our common life, the life that's common to all of us outside of our family units, that kind of work together would need to happen whether there was a fall or not. That's political life. In fact, please understand, friends, po political life isn't, hey, what's the flashpoint issue that everybody's arguing about? In fact, if you really want to see what politics are like, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. Okay, if you have, in fact, you, probably, you know, in this, in this internet age, you can do this whether you have cable or not. There's a television channel. It's called C-SPAN. And what you can do on C-SPAN is you can see how people are making all kinds of public policy, most of which nobody's talking about on the news. And I invite you to do this, but what you, but what you must understand is that it's not going to be the most pyrotechnic experience you've ever had. <laughs> and because people are making lots of speeches and they're doing lots of procedural things in order to do what? For us to get laws, for us to get policies. And all of these things that are very unsexy and not as controversial, that's most of politics. That's most of politics. And so that's really what politics is, this largely very unsexy thing. That's about the management of our common life, and we, and, and we have a system where we have representatives who manage that for us. And my point is this, is that part of what God gives us from the beginning in managing this world, in this stewardship opportunity, it inescapably includes political life. How we're working with and on and in God's creation in our common life together. It's always been part of what's there for us as human beings. It's what God's always wanted. And he's never said, forget it. It's always been there. So it's part of the human task. But here's one of the reasons for calling this whole thing the political discipleship experiment. Do you notice, if you look at Genesis 2, that God puts the man in the garden, and, and there is, he does bring animals to him at some point, but does he do a whole lot else? Does God say, okay, Adam, all right, come, come, come on, all right. Now, this is called your roadmap for all things in the created order. Here you go. So now you have everything that you need, all of your directions to do this. Do you remember that part of Genesis 2? I don't either. And my point is, is that what we are doing with this stewardship opportunity is we are entering into our responsibility, as some people call it, as co-creators, right, as vice regents of God's world for managing this. And now it's like, okay, now be about the work of figuring out and sorting this out. And it just goes on. And there's good ways that it happens, and there's crazy ways that it happens, and there's meh ways that, they, that it happens. And people just keep doing it on and on and on and on with politics, culture, etc. That is part of our opportunity that God has always given us. So is the opportunity one that we have? Yes, it is. An opportunity that is on and on going kind of public life experiment, all right? Think about it that way. And I'm going to say, say more about this later, but if you think about it as an experiment, 
your disposition toward it can be a lighter disposition. In other words, it's a less ultimate position. Right. In other words, because, you know, you're all it's always at work and it's always subject to refinement and revision because you're always working at it. It's a very different thing than saying, well, no, here, everybody, here is the plan for the universe right here. Right. You know, that hasn't worked out so well for us when people have had that idea. So we've got this great political experiment opportunity just by being human. And if you're a Christian, then the question you're asking is, is somebody reconciled to God through Jesus? Is somebody who is now what I call sometimes a rehumanization project? Because being made alive by God is now making you a person that is rightly related to God through Jesus. And now because of the work of the Spirit, you're a person who in being made alive is able to become more and more like what God wants a human to be. Hence a rehumanization process. As you're a part of this, what does that mean when you are out here engaging his world in political life and other dimensions of life? I think one of the things we have to address is what is the second question, which is the loyalty question. And in Psalm 8 and in other texts, what, what do we see already about the disposition of the psalmist here? What we see in this Psalm of David is clearly a relationship with, with God that is a great, loving, committed relationship. There's no question about it. There's no question about to whom David has loyalty here. There's no question here about who's calling the shots. There's the recognition that it's God's world, and I'm part of God's world, and I've got this opportunity, but I'm acknowledging that this is God's and not mine and no one else's. It's his. And because my loyalty is to him, that I'm looking to him to be the one who guides me, to be the one that establishes my priorities. And that first priority being ultimate loyalty to him. Now, you might be saying, isn't that kind of like Discipleship 101? Yes, it is. But this is the thing. I'm going to assume everyone in this room knows that truth. No, maybe that's a mistake, but I'm assuming it. If, if everyone knows that truth, it's great, but it's not the only truth that's out there. Because the other truth is that you also live in this very interesting world. And then in this very interesting world, you may be aware that there are other things, other, if you will, organizations and institutions and other things in the stuff of creation itself that like to be what I like to call the carnival barkers in the created order. You know, a carnival barker, you go to a carnival and there's people yelling at you, hey, come over here, you know, give me a quarter or whatever, and you'll probably lose this quarter because the game is rigged, but hey, come, come to my thing, right? There's carnival barkers in the creation saying, come to me and give me your ultimate loyalty. And here's what I promise to you. If you come to me. And here's the thing. You see me. You don't see God. So why don't you come over to me? And if I'm the one to whom you have ultimate loyalty, you'll have exactly what you want. It's really like a rerun of Genesis 3, honestly. Disregard God, turn towards something other than God, and you'll get the life that you want. You'll get if you participate in this transaction, it will be great. And my point is that in this world, there are always other things vying for our loyalty. I mean, ask yourself, please do not raise your hand. Ask yourself, are there other things that vie for my loyalty with God? Are there other things that strangely have my address? That strangely know a lot about me. That strangely seem to be tailor-made for me. And they go, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I've got something nice for you. Come on. It'll be the greatest thing ever. Just sign this paper right here. 
and it will be awesome. I promise. Right? Now, perhaps a few of you have had this experience. Right? Perhaps some of you had this experience yesterday. Perhaps some of you are having it right now. I make no accusations. What, I, they're, they're not thought balloons I can see. I don't know what anybody's thinking. Okay? I'm just saying that the fact is that we might know, we might confess that our Lord Jesus is God. In fact, we were just singing about how dependent we are on God. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's awesome. But you know what else is real? Other things calling your name. Other things saying, I got something for you. It's right here. And this will show you how to really live. This will really give you the life you always want. If you just come on over here, come on. It'll be great. Do you know what you get when you do this, by the way? What you get is worldliness is what you get. And that's important to note because sometimes the reason people say don't be involved in politics is because it just seems so worldly to me, by which they mean any participation in God's creation. Now, look, I think we just established that participation in God's creation is kind of what we're given as human beings. So that can't be the problem. So if that's not the problem, then how is worldliness a problem? Here's how worldliness is a problem. And 1 John 2, 15 to 17 helps us to see it. If you think about it, it says, don't love the world. Then it tells you about everything in the world. What's everything in the world? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. What are those things? Those things are desires. They're not about the stuff of creation at all, but they're about what happens with your desires in this creation. And what are you doing if you're being a worldly person? You're basically taking your eyes off of God. You're not so sure about your loyalty to God, and you're placing your loyalty elsewhere. You're letting yourself be directed by someone or something else. And when you're being directed by someone or something else in the world that God has made, in effectively living, in effect, living in God's world as if the world and the things in it are all that there is, then you're worldly. But the fact of participating in God's world the world that God has made with God directing you is not worldliness. So it's not the doing of politics that's the problem. It's the doing of politics with the wrong loyalty. That's the problem. And sadly, a lot of people have that problem. Why? Because what happens during elections? I'll tell you what happens during elections. It's that line. You know, one of my favorite songs is uh, by The Temptations. It's called Ball of Confusion. It's a great song. If you want to, like, hear and sort of experience what's happening in the late 60s, early 70s, just, just experiencing the song will, will give you that experience. Well, there's this line in there that, that, that when they're talking about what people who are running for office do. What do they do? They say, vote for me and I'll set you free. And the point is, is that it doesn't matter what party it is. They say, vote for me, and I'll set you free. And sometimes what people really come to believe is, if this person gets elected, if enough of us vote for that person, do you know what that person's going to do? Believe it or not, in that moment, they might be feeling like, that person is going to take me to the promised land. And then just get in line for the disappointment. Because I don't care how great any political figure is. No political figure will de deliver to you the realized kingdom of God. They can't do it. And by the way, at least in this republic, these United States, we say we're a republic, which means what? No one person who gets elected gets to tell everybody what things are supposed to be. That whatever promises that they make doesn't mean that, hey, I made promises to you, and now look, here I am. All of you, the rest of you that got elected, you need to get on board with me because I made promises, and I'm delivering on these promises, and you will let me be the dictator of this assembly, and then what will you get? Then maybe they'll get the promised land, but you won't. People have been waiting a long time, a long time. But what happens to us? 
you know, we live in a complicated world. A world of madness, you might say at times. A world where things go wrong. A world where we'd like things to be better. And in these United States where we talk about things like liberty and there's this thing called the American dream, which often strangely seems like your personally designed eschatology in terms of what your perfect life can be. And it is your right as a citizen of the United States to be able to get the life that you design. Your perfect kingdom is your right in this country. And then if that's what you think, and if you think the political system is going to deliver that, and then it's not happening, you might get a little nervous. You might get a little upset. You might start wondering, what is this? What about my American dream? What about what's mine? Right? And here's the problem. The problem is thinking that the American dream is about delivering the kingdom of God for you in the first place. Because it can't do it. If it's delivering anything, it might be delivering you, you know, a little bit closer to your own idolatrous imagination. <laughs> if it's doing anything. Why? Because it's what you thought. It's what you put in place. Now, please understand. Look, I like stuff. I like a happy life. I like a comfortable life. It'd be great if I could have that. I love a peaceful life. I like all that. I'm not against it. But... The idea that somehow I have a perfect vision of what that is and that what it will be for everybody if it's that way for me, that sounds just a little bit like I'm the center of the universe. And my name is not Yahweh. My name is Vincent. Right. And so the point is then that we cannot confuse our desires for a better life. And I'm not saying we should have a better life. Look, I'm all about human flourishing. But we shouldn't confuse our aspirations for human flourishing with the realized kingdom of God because we don't see clear enough. And if our loyalties are out of whack, we can start to think, well, no, I mean, somebody said they're going to deliver what I want. Well, what we need to be asking is, where is my loyalty? Am I as enthusiastic about my life with God as the psalmist is? Am I so overwhelmed by what God has done by even giving me the opportunity to be participating in this political discipleship experiment that I'm thinking, God, you're so awesome, and I'm with you. And lead me and guide me as I'm doing this thing that's subject to constant refinement, as opposed to saying, God, please sponsor what I want. Please let me tell you exactly what it is supposed to be, and it's your job to make my designs happen the way that I want them to take place. What's the problem with that? Is that I am trying to be God. And God's not interested in anybody else being God. This is how the, the Israelites got in exile. They developed a strange taste for idolatry. You don't really mean all that stuff about covenantal adultery, God, really. What you mean is, it's all right if we worship you and say, I'll be back. And I'm going to go over here to the store where all the idols are. And I'll traffic with one of those today. You don't really care, do you? And God says, I'm warning you. And God says it many times. And then he says, here come the Babylonians, is what he says. And my point is, is that God's not interested in competition. God says, I made you. I know everything about you. I know what this world can be if you're living into what the potentiality of what it is to be human beings. And I want you, through engagement with me, to be discerning what that is, rather than deciding that you can disregard me, fend for yourself, and somehow make a better world. It's just not going to happen. So when we think about the loyalty question, the loyalty question is, who is really the one to whom we are ultimately loyal? When we say Jesus is Lord, do we mean it? Now, please understand. I don't mean that in kind of a works righteousness way. What I mean, though, is that are you coming to God regularly saying, Lord, you know, sometimes I get kind of distracted, but I want to be less distracted. 
And I want you to be my number one all the time. And I want you to be the one who's guiding me. I want you to be the one that's establishing my commitments and my priorities because I belong to you. You have made me. You've made reconciliation possible for me through Jesus. And I want to live like a reconciled person to you. Help me to do that. If we're doing that, then we're trying to be more and more loyal to the one that has made us. So we second have the loyalty question. Then the third question is what I call the behavior question or the disposition question. Now, there's not a whole lot about how you do things or what kind of person one is in Psalm 8. But the disposition here in Psalm 8, the tone, I mean, if you listen to that language, right, that's exalting God because of his majesty, but then when you think about that, that question, what is man that you're mindful of him, that it's not a man that you care for him? That, that kind of disposition conveys a sense of awe and a sense of gratitude. Being kind of overwhelmed by the fact that, God, you're doing this for me? I mean, have you ever received a gift? Have you ever been the beneficiary of someone's generosity? And you thought to yourself, oh, wow, this is amazing. Thank you. I wasn't expecting this at all. You know, where you're almost thinking, why did you do this? Right? And you think, I feel so undeserving. Right? And they say, it's for you. And they don't, you know, and they, and they don't want you to act like you're undeserving. They, they're, they're happy if you just say thank you. You go, it's for you. And the reason I, I want to think about that is, if that's our disposition to the opportunity that God gives us in this world with this political discipleship experiment, what does that mean in terms of how we will in turn relate to others? If we're these people of gratitude, these people who are so thankful for what God has done, what, what is that going to do to us when it comes to how we want to relate to others? It would seem to me that gratitude would orient us more and more to God and open us up more and more to God. And if we're opened up more and more to God, then we are these people that can be experiencing these things, these, these, these texts that we quote all the time, like Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, people who are living sacrifices, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, people in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 that are you know, trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's an amazing salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, and if we're those people, then what's it doing to us? What's it turning us into? How's it leading us to be disposed toward others in our participation in this political discipleship experiment? And here's why I think it's important to think about this. The idealist in me, and sometimes I have my idealistic moments, and then I like go to Twitter or something, right, which destroys it all. Uh, well, no, there are good things that happen on Twitter, you know. You say, oh, that was an interesting article. Oh, that was funny. And then it's like, and then just the gravity just, just goes down, right? But, but the, the, what, what is unfortunately the case is the idealist in me wants to believe that Christians are the people most known for always leading with generosity, even with people that they disagree with. But here's the problem. Sometimes, if you really care about something, if you really, really, really care about something, and you're convinced about that you're right about the thing that you care about, I love conviction, so that's good. But... There's a potential hazard that can come along with it. And that hazard is that people who don't see things the way that you do, that you might find yourself um, frustrated <laughs> with them. And maybe frustration is just like the doorway into anger and other things. And it's not that you might, you might not be wrong, right? But if you're deeply convinced about something, 
doesn't require you to be completely bent toward those people. Bent as in angry. Doesn't require you in being right to believe you're justified. And I think this is sometimes what some people do, right? They're like, I got the truth. And then what does it justify? It justifies them strangely going to the worst parts of their character. To their vices rather than their virtues. In their expression toward others. And they're like, well, I owned them, didn't I? I told them off, didn't I? Right? You know what it's like? It's like revenge. You know, like in, in movies, it's like, okay, at the end of the movie, you know, they fire the gun. You know, the gun is still smoking. I got you. Right? And, and, and the sense of the movie is that, ah, oh, revenge. It happened. Complete justice and peace and resolution. Really? Well, revenge is going to leave you still with people in the book of Ecclesiastes. You're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to have complete shalom on the inside. You may have had some kind of justice, and maybe, you know, in the movie, let's go with it, maybe you needed the justice, all right? But it will not deliver you to a place of peace. You will still be not so at ease, right? And, and my point is, I think it's important for us to be honest about the fact that sometimes we get upset about things, but to then ask ourselves in that moment, what does it mean to be a person who's being transformed? What does it mean to be a person characterized by grace, mercy, and love? What does it mean to be a person, even for the person that is the complete opposite of what I stand for, and, you, and, and by the way, that might even genuinely be a terrible person. What, I, I'd like to believe there's no such thing. But <laughs> over here, however, we have a witness that says it's not, I'm sorry. It's, oh, somewhere over there, we have a witness that says it's not true. And, she's, and that person is right. There are people. They're like terrible people. And sometimes they like, like being terrible people, right? I mean, they show, oh, wow, sin really does distort, doesn't it? But that even with the terrible person, what you want is their flourishing. What you want is what's good for them. That you actually regard them, believe it or not, as a neighbor. You do realize that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't say, Except, he doesn't say, did you see this asterisk beside the word neighbor, which meant everyone, I don't want to be my neighbor, right? Nope. If they are human being, if they are divine image bearer, even if they, in a certain logic, merit your disdain. If you're a gospel person who's received mercy, if you're a gospel person who's being transformed, then you ought to be the person who says, I'll admit that vengeance is mine is what I'd like to say. But because God has not brought wrath on me, because God is not going to bring vengeance on me, then I am going to try to be as merciful as I can as generous as I can. I can't control what they do, but I can control what I do. And I can be a person who says to Paul, love does no harm to a neighbor, whether it's verbally or in any other way. And so what is our behavior? What is our disposition? It ought to be people who out of their gratitude to God, out of being transformed by God, are people who are disposed towards being more and more, as they're being transformed by the renewing of their minds, as they're working out their salvation, that they are people who display gospel generosity to all neighbors, Amen. no exceptions. There's the last question. 
the endurance question. I would love for the world to just have everything resolved. Now, it would be nice. It's not. It hasn't been since Genesis 3. Right? I would always like to say that Genesis 3 is the beginning of the original horror show. Right? Let humans do their worst and it's on. And even though we've had a lot of good things happen, like, you know, there, there's a lot of great things that have happened in the United States. There are a lot of horrors that have happened in the United States. We want things to go well. And, you know, in this thing that we call the American experiment, a version of a political experiment, there have been ways that there have been kinds of flourishing and opportunities that have happened for people, and there's been a lot of antagonism to people that have wanted that opportunity. And the desire for that, here or anywhere else in the world, it can sometimes make you think, is there any reason to keep my hand to the plow here? Should I just go off and do something else? It seems like every time there's one more surprise. Every time it's like, well, I wasn't expecting that left turn. I wasn't expecting that to emerge. I wasn't expecting this to go wrong. And it can make us feel like, should I go on? And I think what we need here is patient endurance. Patient endurance. And part of the reason that patient endurance is two reasons. One is that if we look at what Scripture tells us, between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, there's really no reason to be expecting things to be completely perfect. I mean, think about it. Here are the disciples after Jesus is resurrected. They're with him for 40 days. It's kind of nice. So before he goes away, though, they ask him a question. They go, hey, I mean, you're raised from the dead. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is it go time for everything to be nice, or at least especially nice for us? And Jesus says, sorry, can't tell you. <laughs> he says, but you will have power to be my witnesses. And he makes no promises that's going to be easy. There are no promises about it easy. In fact, he seems to be pretty good at promising it's going to be rough. <laughs> Which, by the way, open parenthesis, if Christians complain about people mistreating them, why is anybody ever surprised when the Bible tells you again and again and again that if you are a Christian, guess what? People will lie about you, and they will do a whole lot worse than that. They'll try to kill you. And everything in between. So, yes, I'm glad in these, uni these United States we have this kind of Judeo-Christian ethos, etc. And, by the way, however secularized we're getting, Europeans and others still think we're a bunch of fundamentalists. Uh, however it is here where things are a little rougher if you're a Christian, I want to say, surprise, surprise, Jesus told you so. And I don't mean that to be snarky. It's just the fact that we can forget that we should never be expecting a world without opposition, Amen. a world where things are difficult. It doesn't mean we can't make anything a little bit better. But it does mean that we're going to have to have patient endurance as we try in our participation in this stewardship of creation to do things in the world, and I think this is important, do things in this world that gesture towards what will come when Jesus gets here. Not things, this is my language, so we can talk about it later if you want to, not things that put in place what only he can put in place. And what I mean by that is, if you're thinking about this as an experiment, and if you're thinking about this as an experiment, whether it's going to be peaks and valleys, ups and downs, twists and turns, things that will frustrate you, but you're trying to put things in place, just a little bit here and there, those things are gestures toward what is coming rather than saying they're establishing what is coming. Why? Because he's going, to give, he's going to be the one that actually establishes everything. And do you know what happens if you're thinking about it that way? You don't have a big burden on yourself to make it happen. 
You have the opportunity and responsibility to be living a life of faithful responsiveness to the opportunity God's given you with this first great commission to say, how am I with what God's given me in terms of my gifts, talents, abilities, context? What's my place in being part of gesturing in some ways, through various things, gesturing towards what is coming, like the trailer to a movie. It's not the whole thing. Right, but it gives you a sense of what is coming. And that the different things that Christians are doing are those gestures. I think that's important as opposed to what's called a more triumphalistic approach, which is we will put it in place. If anybody says that, run. <laughs> because why? Because when they say we will put it in place, they seem to somehow say, I am the person with a completely sanctified mind and vision. And I see everything perfectly clear the way that God wants it for this time and this place and really for all times. And if you just go my way, you're going to get it. What's happened in history when Christians have said that? It hasn't been a good record. It has not been a good record. Instead, we ought to be those who say, Lord, how are we your faithful people enduring amid the slings and arrows, twists and turns, shifting winds of all kinds of things that happen in life and in society. But we're the people who go on, trusting you, knowing that you are going to wrap this thing up one day and that you're present with us in the meantime and that you have never said to us that we should not be part of this experiment. You've never vetoed this experiment. You've given it to us. And if we're those people, then we face the endurance question, not pretending it won't be hard, not pretending that there won't be times that we get discouraged, but knowing that God is with us, that God has got us, so to speak, and that God's going to take care of it all and wrap it all up himself on his timing. And at the meantime, our goal is to be those who are faithful and responsive to him. We're people who keep experimenting. We keep saying, hey, I'll throw this at a wall. I'll throw this at a wall. I'll throw this at a wall. Ah, that one was kind of whack. Okay, I'll try something else. But we keep at it. We keep experimenting. And, we, and when you're experimenting, you can have more joy and delight in the experimentation process, even when you understand the gravity of the things that are involved, because human lives are involved. You can have more joy and delight in that rather than feeling some kind of unnecessary pressure in the midst of it. Because you know when you're experimenting, you're always doing something that's a, an, an effort with what God's given us, but, but you know it's always going to be refined. And because it's always going to be refined, you go, okay, we're going to keep going back to the drawing board, but we're going to keep trying, and we're never going to get out of what we might call the political discipleship lab. Right? We just keep it up. We keep it up. We keep at it. We trust God. We trust him with the results. And we also ultimately trust in him to set everything right. And when we're those people, we can do that kind of with a lesser weight in our shoulders. What an opportunity. If you, if you feel like you've had difficulties and challenges in talking to people about this, invite them to just turn to the Lord and to look at the opportunity that God gives us. And, if, and I should say, an opportunity that God gives us that's very unique if you're in a place like the United States. Because most people in world history have not had anywhere near the political agency that people have, had, people have in the United States. It's a unique thing. And that God gives the opportunity for us to participate in this in ways where we don't have to make it all happen. But we trust him to ask us to make a little bit happen. And we leave it to him and we leave the results to him. This is a great opportunity. I invite you to participate in it and invite you to invite others to do so. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for making us and making us people who have this incredible opportunity. Lord, you put us over your world. You did not have to do that, but you chose to do that. Help us to be good stewards, but also stewards who don't carry 
the weight of trying to make everything happen perfectly. But people who joyfully delight, full of gratitude for the opportunity, the opportunity to keep experimenting in your world and watching how you will bring fruit with the various experiments that we put into place. Be with us. Give us endurance. Help us to be a people of hope. Help us to be a witness of generosity to a world that needs all the good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.